Good morning, everyone. We are starting, as you see behind me, a new um, uh, message series. Thank the uh, teaching team for um, working through this. This was a this was a challenge in a bit. We we thought together back, and those who've been here longer than I have, we did not think we'd ever taught the book of Daniel. So we're excited to do that and open that to you today. We'll be spending a couple weeks of um, introduction, but uh, we do want to just give you a little bit of overview. How many of you actually ever studied the book of Daniel? Oh, wonderful. We got lots of people that are going to get to exposed to this the first time. I'm sorry if it's a little small. I try to get this in here. We, uh, we worked through a couple permutations of how we do this series. We had some things like a, uh, a church launch to fit in here. But we but we kind of broke it down in a way I think that is very appropriate. We're going to look in this first half of this study, the preparation of the character of the man. Um, and we'll see in the weeks to come. Today we're going to look at Daniel and the covenants of Israel, how the, uh, the past helps us interpret the present and the future. Uh, second week, next week, we'll look at the historical and personal setting of Daniel, the events around his life, the way his life was shaped even as a young man, and how he ended up in Babylon, uh, serving Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Uh, third week, we'll look at the character and conviction of Daniel. And of course, a lot of you may have seen some of these stories or heard these stories as, as a kid in Sunday school, but we're going to try to, to uh, upgrade that to an, an adult level and look at some of the uh, lessons and the principles that are behind these things. And then uh, the week after that, we'll look at Daniel's friends, um, the fact that Daniel was not alone. There were other people that supported him, and we'll see how those uh, three friends of his uh, also were of like kind of character. Um, <clears throat> then we'll look at Daniel's enemies and his committed practice of prayer, and then we'll end this first half with uh, looking kind of more, setting the stage for the second half of the study. We'll look at the sovereignty of God over the rulers of earth, and I guess at this time, given our uh, current um, international situations going on. It's, it's comforting to know that God is in charge, that there's nothing that moves. There's not a person that moves on another country that God is not aware of it. He already had uh, an insight. He knows how it's going to end, what the outcomes will be, and he is working all through those events. And not only there, but in other countries, our own country, and we can see that God can raise up, but he also can take down. And uh, we'll look at that in that last week of the first half of the series. Second half, we'll look at the visions of Daniel. And uh, Easter Sunday, we're going uh, to look back at Daniel's vision, the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. But we're also, and I'm excited because I'm preaching that week, we're also going to look at Revelation 1. The thought that a lot of times we're not thinking about what does Jesus look like now? I mean, we think of him in his earthly ministry but he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and, and Revelation chapter 1 gives us a very insightful uh, understanding of who our risen and glorious Lord is. Then we'll look at the prophecy of the times of the Gentiles and Nebuchadnezzar's two visions in Daniel 2, the vision of the, uh, the, the multi-metaled uh, uh, image, and then Daniel chapter 7, the vision of the beasts. Then we'll, then we'll spend a week trying to understand the two peaks of prophecy, the idea that 
understanding Daniel, you're going to look at things that are near fulfillments, and then you're going to look at things that are farther fulfillments down the road, and, um, and kind of how we can go about interpreting those and making sense of them. And then in the next to last week of the series, we'll look at the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, which is a very critical prophecy, maybe one of the most important ones in the whole book, because it lays out a very particular, a mathematically accurate historical record predicted in the vision of Daniel and interpreted there of what God's workings were going to be, not only among the nations, but especially Daniel was concerned, what is God going to do with the nation of Israel? And then finally, we'll look at the millennial kingdom to come. And I thank those who prepared the music this morning. Um, First song that we sang, we could have stopped on every phrase and had a message, you know. I mean, is, is God going to dwell among us? Yes, he is. Is, uh, is there not going to be a need for light to light today? Well, we'll look at all those, uh, at least several of those concepts in the millennial kingdom and then the new kingdom of the new heaven and new earth. And um, so we're looking forward to it. I, I ask your continued prayers for the teaching team. Uh, I, I know uh, we're all going to be stretched to a degree or other, um, and you will be as well, I think. Um, prophecy is an exciting topic, and um, yet it's sometimes challenging. There's lots of uh, different ways to look at it. Lots of people have looked at it very differently, and so we want to uh, provide kind of a, uh, as best as possible, put, put the cookies on the bottom shelf, kind of make this plain and understandable. We use the scriptures to interpret the scriptures, and we pray that uh, your minds and hearts will be open to this study. As we begin, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer together. Our Father, we we do come to your word humbled. We do come to your word um, as learners, those that are asking for your spirit to open our minds and hearts. Help us, Lord, to be inquisitive, help us to be um, uh, uh, patient, uh, to, um, uh, to trust your word to be its best own interpreter. We ask, Father, that you would also um, help us to be diligent, to check these things out for ourselves. It would be like the Bereans that, that want to prove and see these things to be true for themselves and are willing to get into the word and compare these things and Lord, I pray that as, uh, as myself today and the other members of the teaching team preach this book, that you would, you would give us uh, wisdom and insight, give us ways to be creative in our communication to help um, this book be um, a blessing to all who hear it, who read it. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Have you ever been perplexed by the workings and the ways of God? I'm not talking about when we are in sin or have wandered away. Of course, things become a little darkened in our understanding when we are not intent upon seeking after God. And I'm not even talking about when you have a walk that's disciplined and consistent, but sometimes dull and routine. I'm talking, have you ever been perplexed with God when you are in a place where your relationship with him is good and vital? where your prayers seem like they're connecting and God comes near, but he's leading you towards something unknown, something new, and there is some hesitation even as you move forward with his leading. 
I know some of your circumstances. We just had some people who are getting ready to move. There's a lot of things that are in flux. And those can be times, even as we're ardent in our relationship with God, where we wonder what's really going to be the outcome of what comes ahead. Sometimes these decisions, these points of our life, like deciding to get married, a decision to move, very relevant here from these four families, taking on a hard responsibility. But even with those kinds of decisions, what happens when those plans are suddenly upended and changed? That we have set our path in this direction, but God steps in and he just shifts the canvas. This kind of experience is a crisis, a decision point of our faith. It is often the place where our finiteness runs headlong into the infinite and inscrutable. Big word, definition, inscrutable, impossible to understand or interpret. We run into the inscrutable character and ways of God. The fact that God doesn't tell us all his secrets. As much as he gives us in the realm of prophecy, there's still so much that's yet unknown to us. Things like, why does he allow evil to flourish unchecked? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the innocent and the godly suffer? Has God forgotten his promises? Or if he hasn't, why does he delay? As we begin to look into his life in the book of the Bible that bears his name, we'll find that Daniel is a man of exceptional character and a giant of the faith. His visions hold many of the keys to interpreting other prophecies concerning God's plan for the rest of human history. But Daniel was also a man, like us, who struggled to make sense of what God was planning to do in the world. And especially since it seemed that he has changed his mind about his promises to Israel. He was truly perplexed and vexed in spirit as he receives these visions. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. This will be probably the only time we're in the book of Daniel just to set the stage. I want you to see that being a prophet is a tough job. Having this called the oracle sometimes in the books of prophecy... And the word oracle means it's a burden. These men getting revelation and information that, that they're now the steward of, and they're now the mouthpiece of God, but they don't even always fully understand what it is God's saying. Turn down to chapter 7, and you might, if you have a pen, underline these things. I will not give you the whole context, but it, these, these phrases that we're going to jump through here they're wrapped around the fact that Daniel's either been given a vision, given a prophecy, given a word from God, or he's pondering it and still trying to figure it out. And notice the effect that it has on him. And Daniel 7.15, And as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Turn over, verse 28. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Chapter 8, verse 15. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And basically, 
He's struggling because he couldn't. Verse 17, so this angel Gabriel came near to me where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Turn over, chapter 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. This is a result of him receiving God's word. He's in mourning. Verse 8. I was left, so I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. Daniel 10, verse 16, And behold, one who resembled a, man, a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? For as for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. It's very heavy things that Daniel was called to bear. Now, why was he so perplexed? Why did these visions create such anguish for Daniel? Because it seemed that God had abandoned his promises to his people. Daniel had a whole backdrop, a whole view that was grounded in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the Psalms of David, the the prophecies of a Messiah, but also recent history, the prophecies of Jeremiah and Obadiah and others who were saying God needs to chasten his people. And Daniel is in the part... In the midst of that chastening, as a matter of fact, the chapters we looked at, he's at the end of the 70 years of cap- captivity that God had ordained to chasten his people for their disobedience to his covenants. Today we want to look at these five covenants of Israel to help us understand why Daniel was so weakened and to understand his worldview as he received these visions from God. But first things first. Maybe. Boom. Boom. Dead. Luke, can you help me? <laughs> I'm, I'm not working. We need to ask, the, ask and answer the question, what is a covenant? A covenant is a sacred compact between any two persons or nations that binds the parties to certain terms and the fulfillment of certain promises or obligations for the duration of the arrangement. Often there are accompanying rituals that strengthen the personal nature of these promises. That's just the kind of a, a, a big picture definition. Uh, there were people in the ancient world that had covenants. Not, this was not just something unique to Israel and to God. Other nations had formed covenants between two kings or those kind of things. There are two types. Hey, there we go. There are two types of co- covenants. The first type is an unconditional covenant. It's initiated and promised by one party to the other, although some conditions may be implied. Um, Let's think about marriage. Marriage is an unconditional covenant. I hope you've never been to a wedding where there was a lot of ifs in the vows. Anybody been to one of those? I mean, it's a modern world, so you never can tell. But it's an unconditional covenant. And we have one party 
unconditionally pledging themselves by vows, by ritual, to the other. And then the other party, unconditionally pledging themselves to their spouse with no ifs in the arrangement. And obviously, we see that there are rituals. We have all kinds of ritual in a marriage ceremony. We have exchange of rings. We have vows. And we have ornate dress. And we have, you know, important people there. And all those kind of things. And there is this sense that very much this is not a contract. It's something much more sacred. There's also an unconditional, <coughs> a conditional covenant. This is where both parties are bound to obligations towards one another. Promises are based on the fulfillment of these agreements. In these divine covenants of Israel, we'll see that there is some of both. Um, in God's case, unconditionally, God establishes a compact with man obligating himself in grace by the formula, I will. I will do such and such for you. We'll see that shortly. He binds himself to bring to pass of himself definite blessings on the covenant, covenanted ones. These might be further affirmed with the swearing of an oath. Or, conditionally, God might establish a covenant, a proposal of God, wherein he promises, um, <clears throat> wherein he promises in a conditional or mutual contact, compact with man by the contingent formula, if you will, to grant special blessings to man, provided he fulfills perfectly the certain conditions, and to execute definite punishment in case of failure. And, and both, are, both are possible. There could be conditions and there could be outcomes. If you will, then I will do this. And that could be a positive thing, as in a blessing, or it could be a negative thing. I will give you curses. And we'll see that to come. There are five divine covenants in the Old Testament. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. This is the first one that we'll look at. Genesis chapter 12. And it's in very brief uh, statement. And then we'll see that it is expanded. Notice verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and, I, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is an unconditional covenant with an implied condition. You got to leave, Abram. You got to get away from these heathen people to a place to be by yourself where I'm going to set you up to become a nation. So you see how the, that they can be intertwined. But God by himself promises these things to, to Abram. Other than leaving, he doesn't ask anything else of Abram, and he is intending by his own name and his own promise to fulfill this covenant. This covenant is also expanded if you turn to Genesis 15, um, because Abram's asking, well, well, I know you said you're going to make of me a great nation, but 
Um, notice chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless? I, in verse 3, I have no offspring. The one in my house is not my own heir. He's, he's, he's having this, this rub of his finiteness against God's infinite wisdom. And he's asking, look, we're old. My wife's old. You promised this, but I don't see how it's happening. And then God expands and he says, look, look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. He said, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. There was this crisis of faith. I'm old, my wife's old. And God affirms the covenant again, especially the part about having descendants that will be innumerable as the stars. And then in chapter 17, again, there's another affirmation. He's 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. You shall no longer uh, be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Not just a multitude of descendants, but now a multitude of nations are going to come out of you. Expanding of the covenant, again, a formal declaration, God binding himself by his own name to accomplish this. An unconditional covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Next covenant that we encounter is the Mosaic covenant. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, the nation of Israel has been freed from the bondage of Egypt. They're camped out at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God's taken this, in a sense, ragtag group of former slaves who, who have, have this trouble with obstinance, and he's going to tell them something amazing. He's going to take them out of kind of what has become a semi-pagan experience where they, they pretty much, for one side, did not have a whole lot of revelation about what it meant to be a nation where God was their leader. But they're going to find out what that means. And God is now going to lay out a covenant to Moses, which will be shared to the people, where he's going to lay out some conditions, but a calling as well. And notice in, in, uh, in verse 3, chapter 19, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, you yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, of all the, uh, for all the earth is mine. And notice the second. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Wow, that's a pretty amazing job description. You're not just going to be my people. You're going to be priests to the world, holy, a holy nation. But you need to obey my commandments. 
And from there, uh, all the way, if you notice, all the way to the end of chapter 31, God just continues to speak. Obviously, we had the calf incident in the middle of that, where the people were kind of like getting frustrated that they weren't having a word from God or from Moses. But essentially, God is laying out a whole outline of what it looks like to be a holy people. And it involves how you respond to him, the Ten Commandments, how you respond to other, the second half of the Ten Commandments. First five, relationship to God. Second five, relationship to one another. And wrapped up in those, in those Ten Commandments, Jesus later interpreted and said, look, the whole law is wrapped up in these two things. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbors yourself. And God was meaning for these people to be priests that expanded his glory by being a unique and holy people. But it's conditioned. Will you obey? Will you obey? Will you build this, this tabernacle exactly how I tell you to build it? Will you set aside your priest and consecrate them? Will you offer me sacrifices, the time and the place and the way that I want them offered? And he was being very exacting about how anyone that's a holy people should approach a holy God. And we see all throughout Israel's history, starting in the wilderness, 40 years of wandering, that Israel struggled with obeying and they reaped terrible consequences in their disobedience. Some of them immediate like someone decided to take strange fire and offer it. (laughs) Not the right time, not the right place, not the right person. Exacting conditions. Notice, if you went to Deuteronomy 28, the whole chapter is dealing with, if you do this, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pour out my blessing. I'm going to chase you down with blessing. But if you disobey you're going to have curses upon curses upon curses that you can't even imagine what they'll be like in their pain, in their misery. To whom much is given, much is also required, Jesus said. And so Israel was given much, but they also were going to be judged severely. Fast forward to Daniel. They had a commandment that you're going to let the land rest every seventh year. And guess what? For 490 years, that Sabbath year was not observed. And God says, all right, there's a consequence. For every year you disobeyed, you're going to spend a year in captivity. Thus, we have 70 years of captivity prophesied by Jeremiah. Daniel's in the middle of that. Daniel knew his Bible. He listened to the words of the prophets. He was trained well by his parents. That's his perplexion. God prophesied these things. He also gave another covenant. It was a covenant to be in the land. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is the Palestinian covenant commonly called. And prior to this in, in chapters 27, 29 roughly, there, there's all these layouts. Remember, this is, the, this is the second law, Deuter, second, Namas, law. This is the children of the disobedient, rebellious who would not go into the land. They're now gathered. 
between these two mountains. And Moses, in his old age, is giving them the second giving of the law. Their parents had all passed. Now it's their turn. Will they step up? Will they keep God's commandments? Will they walk forward in faith and take the land that he's promised to them? And there's these conditions as well. But God even predicts to them there's going to be a time where you're going to raise up a king, even though God wanted to be the king. He, he capitulated and he allowed them, he, he predicted that they are one day be an uproar among the people, that they don't want to have an invisible king. They want to have a visible king like all the other nations. God predicted that. And he says, but here's what's going to happen. Those kings are going to lead you astray. They're going to oppress you. They're going to tax you. And they're going to be, in many ways, your downfall because they're going to go after other gods. They're going to make alliances with other nations. I'm telling them not to make alliances with. But chapter 30 is the ray of hope because... There's this sense of the unconditionality of the Palestinian covenant. Chapter 30, so it shall come when all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have sent before you. You call them to mind in all the nations where your Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, and your, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God scattered you. If you are outcast at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, notice there's a change here we talk about near and far. Wherever the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies, on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and the offspring of your body, the offspring of your cattle and the produce of your ground. The Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. And basically God says, there's a time coming when the captivities, the scattering will be over. Now, did that happen in 1948, Israel being established as a nation? Well, probably in some vague way, but there's something yet coming, as we'll see as we go through our study, that's much more glorious, much more permanent, and much more the sense that people will have the capacity as well as the desire to obey God's commandments. We're looking forward to those days. See, this is is an unconditional covenant ultimately because Israel has never possessed all the geographic region that God has demarcated to them in the law. Do you understand that? Israel has never had their total boundaries. Even under Solomon's reign, Israel did not possess all the land that's defined by them by God. Oh, one day they will. And all those tribes will be laid out just as God ordained them and decided them. But it is conditional. In the meanwhile, based on its sense of enjoyment. Israel was in the land a lot of time. 
But they were not enjoying the blessing of being in the land because they were going after other gods and idols. And so God brings about his curses, even after many times his patience through the prophets was calling them to repent. The next covenant narrows down a little bit more the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll not spend a lot of time here because this is probably one of the more uh, well-known ones. But I do want you to see something. This is through the prophet Nathan. God says to Nathan, go to my servant David, verse 5, and let him know that as much as it's his desire to build a permanent temple dwelling for me, he's a man of war. It's not my plan for him. So, So what did David do? He said, all right, I'll do the next best thing. I will, I will accumulate all the materials, and God willing, my son will build that temple, which he did. Solomon built this magnificent, beautiful, one of the most expensive wonders of, of architecture and, and building. But he did give something to David. In verse 10, He said, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's the word? Forever. Forever. Which descendant is he talking about? Was he really talking about Solomon or somebody else? Is there another temple yet to be built? Yes, Ezekiel chapters 38 to 40 tells us there is. And notice the word forever, verse 13. Verse 16 Your throne shall be established forever. Verse 19, David understands that this is not just his next heir. He says, And yet this was insignificant in thine eyes, O Lord God, for thou hast spoken also of the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. Verse 24, For thou hast established for thyself thy people Israel as thine own people forever, and thou, O Lord, hast become their God. Verse 25, Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken. Verse 26, That thy name may be magnified forever by saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. May the house of thy servant David be established before thee. Verse 29, now, therefore, may it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken, and with thy blessing may the house of thy servant be blessed forever. Who, who sits on David's throne right now? Nobody. But somebody will. Somebody, hopefully not too long from now, will be sitting on that throne as the Messiah. Notice, you can look at the parallel passages. Why did Matthew, why did Luke put these genealogies? To show that Jesus had the absolute right to the throne. He's a direct descendant. First, legally through his father, his adopted father, Joseph. 
and by blood through the seed of the woman, his mother, the virgin who gave birth to him. Both of them trace their line directly to David the king. It's literal. Jesus is a literal fulfillment. The son of David who will sit on the throne. And finally, we see this amazing, I guess you could say, like the apex of all these covenants. The new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's turn quickly. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is called the new covenant. And this is given by Jeremiah who prophesied during Daniel's early youth, who was faithful, the weeping prophet. He was in great anguish also. The burden of having to be the mouthpiece to say to the people, repent, repent, repent. Not because God's going to hold back his judgment, but because you need to be cooperative with it and go easy. Because God's not changed his mind on this. Our forefathers disobeyed him. God has already called out the consequence. Just yield to it. Go gently. I believe Daniel's parents were those kind of people. They listened to the word of the prophet. They faithfully followed after God, even in spite of the wickedness of their leaders. And they trained that young man to be special and prepared. We'll see that next week. In this covenant of Jeremiah, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, verse 31, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. You know what iniquity is? Very, Just remember this. Iniquity is self-willed sin. That is, I know exactly what the right thing to do, and I'm purposely, intentionally doing the opposite. I know none of us ever been guilty of that. And their sin I will remember no more. A new covenant, Jesus said, as he lifted a cup with his disciples, this new covenant is my blood, which is for you. The inauguration of the new covenant was found in that ritual dinner. God binding himself unconditionally to those men And by extension, all who would believe in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead become entering into the new covenant. Now, do we have still things to learn? Has the new covenant been fully fulfilled for all of us yet? No, we still have teachers. We still need teachers. The pastoral epistles tell us that. We need people with gifts and those kind of things. But there's coming a time when Every one of us will know the Lord, like know him relationally, not just in the invisibility of the connection, but because we will be present with him, we'll know the Lord. We'll be sinless, and we'll begin to see our minds and our hearts and our imaginations expand exponentially 
because these vague and secret things, these, these infinite things about God, God will begin to trust us more and more and open to us more and more. And when we get to the week of the millennial kingdom, I hope you're excited about hearing about that. Maybe we understand when we go back to Dan, uh, Daniel's vexation of spirit, his being perplexed in his mind, his body taking the effects of these visions. What was rubbing against Daniel? When we see these visions, we'll find out that most of the visions were not about Israel. They're about what God is doing with the rest of the nations. And Israel is only mentioned in minor degree. And that was Daniel's vexation. What about these covenants, God? He goes into fasting for three weeks. He wants to understand, did you forget about us? Lord God, I know the 70 years of, of punishment are coming to an end, but then what? And God had given him visions to say, Israel's not going to be the, the top of the heap. They're going to be subservient. They may go back to the land. They may even have sacrifice reinstituted, but God says you're not going to have a king. Not now. Not, not for a long time. And in the meantime, there's going to be nations one after another, wicked, godless, idolatrous people throughout the rest of recorded history until this last little brief segment when I'll regather my people. I'll fulfill my covenants to them. And Daniel's wearied, trying to just take all that in. One of the most interesting things in my study you find out is there are people whose hearts become inflamed with excitement at the study of Bible prophecy. I hope, I hope I've whet your appetite a bit. I hope this doesn't seem overwhelming. I hope it seems exciting. Because the past is meant to interpret our present and our future. And God's got it all in control. He's got it all laid out. And if we are diligent and humble, God reveals his secrets. He opens his word to our understanding. When we allow his word to be raised up. Well, one of these men I found out was Sir Isaac Newton, very devout believer. He lived from 1642 to 1747. And among all the other things that he was, which were some amazing things, an astronomer, a mathematician, um, NASA still works off of formulas today that he discovered. But he was fascinated with the book of Daniel. He actually wrote a commentary on it. And Daniel had some amazing things to say about his study. He said, about the times of the end, a body of men will be raised up who will, who will turn their attention to the prophecies and insist upon their literal interpretation in the midst of much clamor and opposition. You see, since the time of the apostles, the literal interpretation, which I can tell you our teaching team has decided upon, the literal interpretation of these prophecies has been veiled. But Sir Isaac Newton and then others in the 
19th century and then 20th century, vast numbers of people began to talk about Bible prophecy as events unfolded. And then, of course, the rising of Israel as a nation in 1948 turned a lot of people back to these covenants of God to Israel. Now, notice he says, it's in the midst of much clamor and opposition. You see, God doesn't want people to understand these things. I mean, God does want people to understand these things. And there's a lot of people, interpreters, that don't want us to dig into them. And there's some people that just avoid Bible prophecy. And yet, they miss great treasure. They miss the treasure of knowing how we fit in the will and the plan of God. They miss the treasure of peace. They miss the confidence of knowing that whatever is going on in the world, my God is still in control. They miss the fact that God tells us to long for and to love his appearing. And we're in days when we should really be doing that. I hope there's not a lot of clamor and opposition. I want to explain, our teaching team wants to explain why we're deciding and how we're interpreting these these things in in this book. We want you to have your questions answered and Please feel free to come talk to me Um, because this should be something that leads us actually to peace and enjoyment and blessing. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful that you do not stand like the deist off at a distance and just leave us to our devices to try to just figure things out for ourselves. We're so grateful that you come near and that you, you think it important to raise up men like Daniel to be the, your mouthpiece, to be the recipient of, of heavy truth and heavy revelation and prophecy. And yet, it's also for our good as well that these things have been recorded and we have hold of them and we can profit by them and be blessed by them and come to understand and love you the more. We pray that will be the goal, the outcome of this this study of the book of Daniel, and that we might find comfort in your sovereign plan, that we might be able to marvel at the precision of the predictions and know that your word is faithful, it is true, it is trustworthy, and find great confidence in that as well. Bless us in this study, each one that teaches, each one that listens, and we ask it in Christ's name.